Well, good evening, folks. It is a pleasure to be with you here all tonight. And uh, yeah, when I left the first time, I was so eager to put Montana in my rearview mirror and go see something, see another part of the world. And, uh, you know, when I was done with the military or maybe when the military was done with me, I was so eager to come back home. And I will not leave again. It is great to be back home. Great to be able to work uh, at the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center and uh, just something I really enjoy every day. You know, I come in with to work with a smile on my face and I go home the same way. And uh, many a days I go and they're going to give me a paycheck for that too. Tonight will be one of those nights for sure. So, uh, But tonight I have the privilege to be able to present to you a program, one of my favorites. It's called Lewis and Clark versus Ursus Horribilis or that horrible bear. It would be George Ord, that uh, early American naturalist, uh, some considered by some to be the father of zoology, in uh, 1815 would uh, give uh, that moniker to the, what we know as the grizzly bear today. So uh, what we're going to look at here this evening is, uh, first off, the perspective and who would shape that perspective that Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery would have of this great bear before they would ever come to meet them. And then uh, secondly, really by conjecture on, on my part, what, what did the bears think all this? <laughs> I, I really think it didn't take too awfully long before they would form a very strong conviction about the core discovery. And then finally, we'll take a look at some uh, early incidents when that perspective would come face to face with reality. In other words, their first encounters that they would have with the grizzly bear as they came into the upper stretches of the Missouri River. And uh, so to begin with, uh, who was it and uh, how would that perspective be shaped? Well, by far and large, it would be with those Native American hosts that they had while they were wintering over 18, in the winter of 1804-1805 at Fort Mandan. Uh, the Mandans had been gracious hosts, but as you might imagine, uh, what a curiosity they were for everyone far and wide. I mean, here comes all of these uh, men and all this equipment and supplies that had been coming up the Missouri River and, you know, uh, through oral history, the Assiniboines talked about, uh, you know, seeing them coming up the, the river and uh, amongst themselves were like, these guys are, what's wrong with them? They're nuts. They're, they're traveling at the height of mosquito season and they're going three and four times as far as they'd have to if they just got out of the river and went overland. <laughs> and so certainly, although they didn't see a, a, a lot of uh, Indians as they were coming up, or Native Americans, they uh, had certainly established a reputation as they came, and uh, that winter many of them would come to uh, just kind of see for themselves. And uh, that winter, uh, as you think of the core discovery, here they are at Fort Mandan. Now they're at a point where from this point forward, going up the Missouri, nobody had ever been that they had any reference to, that they had any trust in. And, uh, you know, some people will uh, often comment to me, boy, it must have been like going to the moon. I'm like, well, you know, I, I guess I'd argue that a little bit because uh, the one thing they had when they went to the moon that the Corps of Discovery didn't have was that 24-7, 365 days a year, they had constant communication with everybody back at Earth to help, help them work through problems and situations and give advice and uh, encouragement and those kind of things. But for the Corps of Discovery, now, that was left long ago. They had, they had nothing of the sort. So as they begin to uh, establish rapport with their hosts, begin to learn how to better communicate with them, uh, it didn't take long for them to realize no matter what the subject matter that they were talking about uh, concerning what they were doing, where they were going, why they were here, there would be this common thread that would come up, and it would be that thread of this great bear that they were about to come in 
contact with on a pretty regular basis. And for the Native Americans, they, they told many a cautionary tale about these great bears. In fact, they told many a tale of how many of them had been severely maimed or even killed in the pursuit of one of these animals or in trying to flee and get away from them. But nonetheless, uh, certainly known for their ferocity, and uh, uh, many of them would have a tale to tell that would uh, just frequently come up. So, you know, as we sit and listen to this, it didn't take long for them to realize that the Native Americans, they paid great homage to this animal. And for the Native Americans, you know, as they uh, considered this animal, uh, great strength, uh, tremendous ferocity, uh, very cunning, uh, stealthy. There was just a lot of traits that they certainly admired. And so for them to be able to su successfully pursue and take one of these animals and then to properly adorn themselves or in some cases their home with uh, certain parts of the animal and typically it would be that of the claw or maybe the entire front paw. Uh, sometimes they would, they would hang that entire front paw at the entrance into their dwelling. Or as you see here, uh, this uh, gentleman I have here in the picture up here, the well-known Lakota Sioux chief, his name was Chief Rain in the Face. And you'll notice that collar he's wearing there. That is the front claws, and they would only use the front claws of uh, grizzly bears there. So quite a number of grizzlies that uh, he are represented there in that collar he's wearing around his neck. But uh, his name was Chief Rain in the Face, as I said, a well-known Lakota <coughs> Sioux chief. And uh, for a Native American to properly adorn himself really was to take all of those traits that they admired about this great bear and impart them to the wearer. So if all of us were in a council here this evening and the chief was to walk in amongst us, it really wouldn't matter whether we knew who he was or not because we would take one look at that collar that he had around his neck and there would be instant status and respect from every one of us just by virtue of the fact of what he was wearing around his neck. So it would. Uh, I, I've got another uh, photo here of another kind of bear claw collar. So it's kind of an interesting story. This was a little different style of a bear claw collar, but uh, this one, in fact, had been presented to Captain Lewis as he was coming up the Missouri River. Um, it had really kind of been lost in history. It wasn't until the year 2003, right before we started getting into the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark expedition, and you know, across our entire country, Lewis and Clarkies and the like, and historians and enthusiasts and everyone, you know, they're, they're on the look. Do we have anything to contribute? They're looking everywhere. And lo and behold, back in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, this would turn up in a museum back there. And at first, they didn't know what they had. And it wasn't until they started going back and researching and come to find out that this had actually been presented to Captain Lewis on the expedition. Uh, it's now displayed in the museum at Harvard University. But uh, nonetheless, kind of, you know, just in our recent history, this finally, the, the story of this kind of came back to light. I, I think it really, too, it, it gives a testament to what the Native Americans thought of Lewis and Clark and the core discovery, because certainly just understanding what little we've discussed here tonight, they wouldn't have given this to anybody. So there certainly must have been some respect, if you will, that they had and some trust uh, early on. They must have done fairly well at trying to build that relationship. You know, they were on a military mission from President Jefferson by presidential appointment by President Jefferson as they came up uh, to uh, establish uh, relationships with uh, the Native Americans along the way. So I think that's certainly a testament that in some measure anyway they achieved that. But nonetheless, these tales that the Native Americans told, you know, is 
we discussed it tonight, and maybe you think of your own experiences and stories that you've heard about these grizzly bears, and you think to yourself, wow, if I'm getting ready to go live, eat, sleep, breathe, you know, with these animals with no uh, real protection, I mean, they were in teepees sometimes on the ground, uh, but, you know, what would go through your mind? What would you think of that? I think the number one response that I usually get is, well, I'd be scared to death. It'd be one of fear. That would be the emotion I'd be feeling. And it's interesting to, uh, we get a, just a little glimpse of what was going through the, the minds of the men of the Corps of Discovery. So on the 7th of April of 1805, uh, the Corps of Discovery would push off from Fort Mandan, had all of their dugouts and those two flat-bottom pirogues that were loaded down with their equipment and supplies as they get ready to make their way up the river. It'd be just a few days later, the 13th of April, and I have, you'll have to humor me here a little bit, I have an excerpt uh, that Captain Lewis would re re record on that day where he says, we found a number of carcasses of the buffalo lying along shore, which had been drowned by falling through the ice in the winter and lodged on shore by the high water when the river broke up about the first of this month. We saw also many tracks of, white, of the white bear of enormous size, along the river shore and about the carcasses of the buffalo, on which I presume they feed. We have not as yet seen one of these animals, though their tracks are so abundant and recent. The men, watch this, as well as ourselves, are anxious to meet with some of these bear. The Indians give a very formidable account of the strength and ferocity of this animal, which they never dare to attack, but in parties of six, eight, or ten persons, and are even then frequently defeated with the loss of one or more of their party. Two Minataris were killed during the last winter in an attack on a white bear. This animal is said to more frequently to attack a man on meeting with him than to flee from him. When the Indians are about to go in quest of the white bear, previous to the departure, they paint themselves and perform all those superstitious, superstitious rites that are commonly observed when they're about ready to make war upon a neighboring nation. So, no, it wasn't fear at all. It was this excitement, this zeal. When do we get a chance to see some of these face to face? For ourselves, maybe some of you look at that and go, wow, did you spell check that thing? That looks pretty bad. Uh, so, yeah, you know, uh, none of the men that uh, kept journals, entries on the, on the expedition were really known as spelling to be a forte. In fact, uh, uh, Captain Clark himself, he said he had no respect for a man that could only figure out one way to spell a word. And uh, I, I think he must have had some conviction about that because that term Sioux, to describe the Sioux Indians that they had so much contact with, he spelled it 27 different ways and not one of them was correct. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. So back to this. Yes, I, th this is the perspective that uh, Lewis and Clark and the core discovery would have is, uh, hey, it's going to be business as usual. And uh, we, we can't wait to uh, meet up with some of these bears. And, and hey, when, when are we going to get our chance? Well, they don't have to wait long. In fact, uh, we fast forward. This was on the 13th of April. Fast forward now to the end of the month, the 29th of April. Two young boars would present themselves. This time it would be Captain Lewis. He would have opportunity. They would shoot at both of them. They would wound the one, end up shooting the other one twice. Two well-placed balls in the head. The animal would go down. And, you know, up to this point, Captain Lewis himself had been harboring some inside thoughts and that, that being that, you know, this is not that big of a deal. And after this incident on the 29th, you know, it was almost like, well, that was easy. It was like really anticlimactic. It was a young boar, maybe, maybe 250 pounds, so a, a really young one. But he would share with the men at large after this incident, you know, the fact that, uh, hey, you know, guys, think about this for a minute. Why are the Native Americans that we've been talking with and listening to all these stories, why are they so afraid of these animals? <laughs> think about what they're hunting them with. 
I mean, they've got to get up close and personal. They've got spears, bows and arrows. They did have some rifles or some weapons, some, some guns, but the ones they had really were cheap trade guns. He was like, guys, we have the finest weapons that the United States government could bestow on a military expedition. As you saw today, there's really nothing we need to worry about. Nothing whatsoever. In fact, he would say on the evening of the 29th, he'd record in his journal for a skilled marksman with a quality weapon, these animals are not as dangerous or formidable or as dangerous as they've been represented. And so really this was the perspective of Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery was, hey, we're going to continue on going in the upper stretches of the Missouri and bring it. I mean, the more the better. We can't wait to have some more experience with these animals. And, uh, you know, that excitement was certainly still there. So we'll pause at this point, talk a little bit about, like I told you early on, what did the bears think of all this? They would get a lot of experience with the grizzly bear. In fact, in the journals, there are 103 recorded contacts with the grizzly bear. Uh, 32 times they record killing a bear. 13 other times they attempt to kill the bear, but they only wound it and are unable to retrieve the animal. And then the other 58 cases that they uh, document, it's a little harder to distinguish whether it was a fleeting sight of one that maybe they didn't have the chance to go after, or maybe as time wore on, they didn't have the heart to go after. Nonetheless, that's a little harder to distinguish, but nonetheless, 103 times they record contact with what we believe is the grizzly bear. Uh, so they, they would get a lot of experience. Of those 32 bears that were killed, 28 of them would have been considered in the boundaries of the state of Montana today. So by far and large, uh, the vast majority were, uh, came from, uh, from Montana. Oh, and by the way, that is still where the largest concentration of grizzly bears in the lower 48 continue to reside, uh, is in the state of Montana. But uh, anyway, so yeah, a lot of experience. But here these bears are, you know, they're the king of their domain. I mean, they, there's nothing they're concerned about. You know, they, you, uh, they've got small eyes in the front of their head. They're not too concerned about anything behind them. They don't have a predator. They're the king of their domain. It's kind of like the, you know, the lion on the Serengeti. There's, there's nobody else above them in the food chain. They kind of are grown accustomed to going and doing what they want to do. Now, certainly they did have experience with man, with the Native Americans. However, we've always, as we've already just briefly discussed here tonight, uh, yeah, the bears still had their way. Uh, even when the Native Americans would decide to make an attempt to come after one of them take a, and, and, and take a strike, if you will, they would get their licks in uh, and end up paying a price for that. So here, you know, they've got this experience and their understanding of man. Here comes these buckskin-clad men coming up right into their, really into their homeland, into their very pantry, stealing the food right off their table. In some cases, I mean, you think about it, the work that these guys are doing, they've got these cordel lines. They're cordel lining all of their boats up the river. Tremendous, tremendous task each and every day. Uh, you got to feed that. These guys are eating a lot each and every day. Does anybody have any idea how much they were consuming an average per man per day just in meat alone? Anybody have any idea? Ten pounds? Seven or eight? So uh, it's between seven to ten pounds of meat per man per day. So yeah, you're right on. You know, I always like to try and give a, a picture and vernacular that we understand today so we all know what the Burger King Whopper is. <laughs> you know, we take uh, 28 Whoppers minus the bun, we get an idea of just how much meat these men were consuming on a daily basis. So, you know, I say that to say this, these guys were hunting all the time. 
And fortunately, that was really one of the blessings of the expedition because they stayed on the river. The river was overflow with big game animals, the buffalo, as they would record by the tens of thousands, elk, pronghorn, all along the way. There was plenty of meat, but they were certainly hunting it all the time. So here these guys come up and uh, tramping, like I said, right into their home, right into the heart of their homeland. They're shooting animals all around them. And as they run into these bears, they're coming after, they're excited to come after them. And I don't think it took very long. Well, I think this picture kind of says it best. In their mind, they're like, ugh. There goes the neighborhood. We are really not liking this very much. I, you know, as you read through the journals and you read commentaries on the journals and about the expedition, you will certainly, in most cases, you're going to find that it seems like the population density of the bears as they came through the area of Great Falls was even greater. And they certainly did have uh, their run for the money, so to speak, as they came through that area. And uh, there's a lot of discussion on why that was. But the thing that has always made the most sense to me is, you know, you've got this natural phenomenon there. You've got five different waterfalls at the time along that 18-mile uh, stretch of the river, uh, four of which were of considerable height, 19 feet all the way up to 87 feet high as the Great Falls, spanning the entire breadth of that river that uh, as we heard, or you can read that uh, Lewis recorded on the 14th of June when he first came into that area, seeing what he estimated was 10,000 buffalo on the north side of the river. I mean, a lot of big game animals, and, you know, they're herding animals. And, uh, you know, it gets kind of hot here. It gets kind of hot up there. When it comes time to get a drink, they all en masse are moving down to that river together. Those first ones to get into the water, they're immediately their head goes down and they begin to uh, take on water to satisfy their thirst. All the rest of the 10,000 are still back there. If you're in the back, you can smell it, you can hear your buddies drinking it, and you're not getting any, and you start pressing. Hey, I want some of that. I want my turn. And so you get a lot of flesh pushing against a lot of flesh, and you got the stubborn ones up front. You know, every group has a stubborn one. The buffalo are no different. You know, they're trying to get one last drink, and they keep getting an inch farther and farther out there into that water. And before too long, the current simply sweeps them off their feet, and over the falls they go. An animal that big, going over a precipice of that height, it doesn't end well for them. So not only did Lewis and Clark notice and document this, but many others that would come up into the area that literally below four of the five falls, there is carrying of all sorts washed up on the shore from these animals that would go over. And as we read in that brief uh, description there from Lewis on the 13th of uh, April about the animals that would fall through the ice in the winter and the like. So, I mean, literally as you come through the area of the Great Falls, it's like a smorgasbord for the bears. I mean, everything you want. And, you know, they, they don't like their meat fresh. They like it if it's rotted a little bit and to really get into smelling good. And, you know, I, you and I would say, my goodness, this, this place smells to high heaven. But to them, it's like, ah. And so that area would support an awful lot of grizzly bears. And here they come right up into the heart of it. And I mean, it's trouble from day one. So kind of have an idea what the bears are thinking of this. We understand a little bit now what the perception of Lewis and Clark was, and really it was kind of galvanized when he had that, uh, that incident on the 29th of April that, hey, these are going to be no big deal. Let's keep on going, boys. Uh, so now let's take a look and see what happens uh, in just the, the next few days. And uh, watch what happens to that perception as they get a little better taste of reality. So we don't have to go along. In fact, uh, we'll go to uh, first, we're going to go to the 5th of April. And on the 5th of April, this time our characters have changed a little, little bit. We've got George Drulliard, 
that civilian interpreter and hunter that had been contracted onto the expedition, and we've got Captain Clark himself. The two of them, they have gone out alone to go hunting together. They're going along the Missouri River, and they would come upon a, one of these great bears. Immediately, they know, hey, that, that is definitely one of them. Uh, they both shoulder their weapons. They pull the trigger. Both fire. Two balls find home. Immediately, that bear begins to beller and carry on. Now, it didn't turn and come after them, as later on incidents would prove to uh, be true. But in this case, that bear began to beller and carry on, and now it starts running down the riverbank and swimming across the river. They would reload. They would fire again. They would record in the journals that a total of five times each, they would reload and fire at this animal. So this is a good place to stop for a moment and just kind of get a picture of what, what's happening there because it's certainly, you know, technology has changed a little bit uh, from what they had then to what we have today. You know, we think of a bolt action or even a single shot rifle that you're putting a cartridge in, but everything, they had the leading technology of the day. I have here a, a 1803 Harper's Ferry reproduction, and uh, they had 15 of these on the expedition. This was a rifle. They also had uh, smoothbore muskets as well, as well as the uh, civilians that they contracted on the expedition or um, uh, initially who had come from the civilian world as hunters and trappers and the like. They brought their own weapons with them. But uh, this was certainly a popular one, and it was cutting-edge technology for the day. It was a muzzle-loaded flintlock rifled barrel. And uh, 50, about a 53 caliber ball is what was being shot out of this thing. But uh, the, the operation to fire and reload, I, I mean, it was no simple process. So, you, you know, of course, you go out and it's all locked and ready to go. After that first fire, though, okay, you've discharged. You've got to bring the weapon down. And it's not like in the movies, all right? So you need to put your powder and your patch and your ball Ram all that in there, but again, this is a rifled barrel, so it's gonna, there's going to be a little bit to this. So we start out with, you know, you're going to have to put some powder in there. They have a powder horn, and, you know, in the movies, they always feel, they pour that in there. Ah, that'll be enough. No, they did not do that. They knew exactly how much powder was going to be put in there. In fact, they would have a precise measuring device that they would measure out exactly how much powder was supposed to go in there, and then they would put that into the barrel. Next, they're going to get a... They're going to get themselves a patch. They're going to get themselves a ball. Now, again, it's a rifle barrel, it's, it, so it's going to be really tight. In fact, sometimes it's arguable, but uh, there's evidence to suggest that they had a starter to start that ball down the tube. But you could certainly get proficient and just be able to use your ramrod for sure. Nonetheless, it still takes a little bit of effort to get that going and then finally get it down there, and then with much effort... Finally get that down, tamp it home. All right, we're ready to go, right? No, we're not done yet. Any black powder enthusiasts in here? So we've got our charge ready to go in our barrel, and now we need to charge our flash pan. So this takes a little bit finer grain of powder. So with the, this is not true with a smoothbore, but with a rifle, you had another powder horn or a device that would hold the finer grain powder that would go measured into the flash pan. And then at that point, shut your frism. Then you could come back to full cock, and now you are ready to go again. So a well-practiced man, a well-practiced man, one round a minute is about what you could expect to fire from this weapon. For those that were shooting a smoothbore, so all the guys that came onto the expedition that were in the Army prior to reporting, they were carrying a 1795 Springfield, 
and uh, that was a smooth bore muzzle-loaded gun. They could uh, do that about three rounds per minute, but it didn't have near the accuracy or the power that this thing did. And uh, so, yeah, about one round a minute. So we go back to our story now and uh, talk about the fact they record shooting each five times. So they estimated about 20 minutes expired from the time they discharged the two first rounds, both of them hitting home. The bear goes down, that runs down the riverbank, swims three-quarters of the way across the river. He would finally crawl up on a sandbar before he would finally give up the ghost and die. Uh, they're holding their rifles above their head, I'm sure, as they go down and ford their way across that river. And as they crawl up on that sandbank, sandbar, and they're standing next to this animal, oh, my goodness. This is unlike anything that they had ever seen before. I mean, this animal was huge. Now, when Jefferson had commissioned Lewis for this expedition, you know, he had some expectations. Of one of them was, hey, you're going to new cultures, new animals, new plants, all of it. Yeah, I expect notes, good notes, and a lot of them. Uh, so at this point in the expedition, they'd grown quite adept at recording the different things they were coming in contact with. And, uh, you know, Clark was ready. He did have a tape measure with him. He would pull that tape measure out because they knew this was something worthy of going into the journals. He would pull that tape measure out, and he would measure that bear from the tip of its tail to the tip of its nose. And in the journals, he would record that it would measure 8 feet, 7 and one half inches long. So eight feet, seven and one half. So I've got Stanley here to help me today. Uh, certainly not what they had. So, whoa. Sorry about that. Let's see if we can get there. It's just to give everybody an idea. And there's 103 inches and a half. So eight feet, seven and one half inches long was how long this bear measured from the tip of its nose to the tip of its tail. They take that same tape measure, they wrap it around the bear's chest underneath of its armpits. It's six feet around, just under six feet around at the armpits. They wrap that same tape around the, the bear's bicep. It would measure one foot 11 inches around the bicep of that bear. If I was to take that same tape today and I find the meatiest part of the, my leg that I can get a hold of, I get one foot 10 inches on my, on my thigh. So that bear's bicep had me by another inch. I mean, in every respect, the talons, four and three-eighths of an inch long. Uh, they would estimate it to be about 500 pounds. Lewis would make the remark that he felt they were probably off by 100. He thought it was probably 600 pounds. But nonetheless, I mean, just a huge animal in every respect. They roll the animal over and begin to open it up to field dress it. And as they get inside, the comment that is made by Clark is five balls through his lights. I don't know about you. It's, I, the first time I read that, I thought, oh, five balls in the head. Anybody ever thought anything contrary, or when I, as I bring that up now, you think anything contrary to a headshot? Well, really what they were saying was five balls through its lungs. A lung shot was a mortal shot. They had been hunting big game uh, all the way up, as we've already discussed. They knew what, what a lung shot was. You hit an animal in the lung, really within seconds it's going to go down, and it's going to go down hard. And here this animal, five balls had gone through its lungs. Both lobes were pierced. There was three more that went through above the diaphragm, so still in the vital area, the vital organs, and then two of them did hit it in the head. Ten rounds. All ten rounds hit home with this bear. Man, my goodness. 
They just can't believe this. They begin to, uh, they finish field dressing. They get help to bring, the, bring that bear back to the camp that night. Can you imagine standing around the fire and looking at something that, you know, is another three feet longer than this thing is right here, you know, with huge talons on it, and listen to the stories these guys revealed what they had just gone through? I, you know, I, I imagine that must have been a, a bit of an eye-opener to them. I think we get another glimpse at what's happening in their psyche the very next day. On the 6th of May... Uh, again, there's one little entry from Captain Clark in the journals, and he speaks about actually seeing another grizzly bear go across the river up ahead of them and uh, disappearing into the brush. And that evening on the 6th of May, he would make this comment. He'd say, I'm finding that the curiosity of the men, it's pretty much satisfied concerning these animals. <laughs> yeah, things are that anxiousness is beginning to wane at this point. So here we Fast forward just a few more days, and uh, now we come to my game changer and a uh, different character this time. So this time our, our principal character is uh, Private William Bratton, uh, again, one of, the, one of the workhorses on the expedition, a big man. In fact, when Lewis would contract him onto the expedition, he made comment to his Scottish-Irish descent, his height being well over six feet and of sturdy stature. Again, a big man. So this story starts on the 10th of May and then finishes on the 11th. But on the 10th of May, Private Bratton would come up to the captain. He's like, Captain, my hands, they are so sore. I, there is no way I'm going to be able to manipulate and pull on those ropes, those cordell lines tomorrow. I, I, I need a break. There's no way I'm going to be able to do it. He must have proved convincing for the captain would grant his request. He'd identify him as the hunter for the next day, and uh, he found somebody else to take his spot on those lines. So that morning of the 11th, with great glee, I'm sure, Bratton, instead of a rope in his hands, he finds a gun in his hands, and off he goes to go hunting for the day. I'm sure it started out great. And uh, really, the journal entries for the day of the 11th, I mean, there's nothing that really comes out as remarkable until about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And it would be Captain Lewis himself, and uh, he would make remark to hearing some kind of carrying on that at first he couldn't even tell her where it was coming from. And you get the sense of, hey, what, what is that? Shush, be quiet. He's trying to look around and determine what, what, where is that coming from. And then he begins to focus upstream, and as he looks and focuses in, he realizes, my goodness, there's movement. That's, that's Bratton. He's screaming his head off, and he's running for his life. What is going on? He'd turn to the men, hey, bring all that stuff over here. They bring all the boats, those six dugouts, the two brogues, over onto the same side of the river where Bratton is running down, and they wait. Bratton was a long ways off. But as they wait, he doesn't slow down a lick. I mean, he just keeps coming. He's getting louder and louder as he gets closer. By the time Bratton finally gets to where he's in the presence or he's in company with the captain, the only thing he's got left to do is bend over and grab a hold of his knees. He's about to expire. He's been running so hard for so long. By the time he gets his wits back about him, though, he comes back up. And he's like, Captain, I shot this huge bear, and he chased me all the way down here. And you kind of, it doesn't say this in the journals, but as you, as you look, you can kind of picture maybe the captain looking back at the men and, and kind of looking around and looking back at Brat, and they're like, what's got into you? None of us can see this bear you're talking about. We just see you in front of us acting like a lunatic. And he's like, no, no, Captain, I'm telling you, it was so close. I fired, and he came after me. I was sure he was going to catch me. I ran for my life. Again, he would prove persuasive. We know that because he would turn and identify seven men. Grab your guns, boys. Let's go see what's got into this man's head. And off they would go, backtracking initially up the river on only Bratton's tracks. So they would go along there for a piece. And then suddenly as they look down in the mud, they see 
one of these ominous tracks, one of these grizzly bear tracks. And as they began to examine a little closer, they realized, my goodness, there is some blood there in that track as well. We've got a wounded bear. Maybe there is something to his story that he's trying to relate to us. And so off they would go. Now, at this point, the tracks, both Bratton and the bear, they peel away from the river and start heading up the ravine. So all of them are tramping up through the grass, going up through the ravine. They would go for about a half a mile, that uh, Lewis would explain. And then suddenly Bratton would explain. He's like, hey, this is where I was. And he goes to show them where that bear was. They didn't need to show them anything. They can see where that bear was. The grass is all matted down to where there's a lot of blood everywhere. In fact, they're thinking, my goodness, there's got to be a dead bear around here. They're looking around trying to figure out where did this bear go now. And finally, they do spy where the track continues alone on farther up the ravine. Off they go again. Interest is fairly peaked at this point. Guns are at the ready. They're, they don't know what's going to be coming, but they're ready for something. They would go for about another half a mile, Captain Lewis would record. So we've got to stop here and put all this together. Uh, he would record for us that he figured probably two hours had, had expired since Bratton had fired on this animal. And then they've already tracked, we're chasing for about a half a mile. For whatever reason they don't know yet, it has given up the chase come back to where it was originally wounded, another half a mile, and now they've tracked it alone for a third half a mile for a mile and a half in total over a period of two hours. It's starting to get kind of thick with some alders and the like, and then the captain, as they're going through some of these and trying to make their way, he describes as he pulls some back, seeing the animal for the very first time, and the, and the words he chooses to use was, there he was and very much alive. Uh, they were ready. Two men would come forward both firing at the same time, two well-placed balls in the head, the animal would go down, and uh, here we come, and uh, they're standing, it's like a deja vu moment, it's like, my goodness, this is, looks like the twin to what Clark and Drulier had just brought in the other day, and uh, again, they roll the animal over, and they open him up to begin to field dress him, and as they get inside, the first thing that catches their attention is, my goodness, Bratton, he made the ultimate shot here, he was so close, that one ball, both lobes of his lungs were destroyed. They finish field dressing that animal all the time. This is kind of processing. They're remembering what Clark and Drulliard had told them. They're remembering seeing that bear. They're looking at another one of them. They're just all seen with their own eyes. Both lobes of the lungs are gone, and Bratton certainly looked like he was scared to death when he showed up down there. I mean, he thought he was going to lose his life that day. I think at this point it's safe to say they were all shook to the core. I say that for this reason. They would get the bear back to the camp that night and uh, process it. I mean, they made use of the meat. They, that, that one thing they really prized from the grizzly bears was they'd render down that fat and make it into tallow or uh, greasy. You know, and as long as they kept that air tight, that stuff would last for a long time. They used it for cooking. Anything that needed lubrication to include sore hands or the like, uh, but tallow was great. So, uh, and, uh, in fact, off of that uh, bear that Clark and Drulliard had shot, they did record that they were able to render six gallons of tallow off of that bear. Give you an idea just how, how big of an animal that was again. But anyway, they get back to the camp that night, and uh, as uh, Captain Lewis reflects again on another day and gets ready to record uh, the events of the day, he, he chooses these words to explain, you know, kind of what's going through their mind. And he says, uh, he says, I'm finding these bears being so hard to die. Well, they rather intimidate us all. In fact, I must admit, I do not like the gentleman. I would just as soon fight two Indians than one grizzly bear. So yeah, this is the same Captain Lewis that just 12 days prior had said, hey, skilled marksman, 
quality weapon, they're not as formidable, as dangerous as they've been represented. And I think it's good to put it in context, too, that, you know, it's not like he's recording this to share with his grandchildren one day, you know, with his posterity. No, he is, by presidential appointment, keeping notes of everything that they're doing. This is going to be shared with all of America. And what he's telling all of us here is, you know what? We were wrong. <laughs> we were dead wrong. In fact, every time I go through this particular story, it, uh, it reminds me of a phrase I like to tell myself once in a while. And usually it's when I think I'm pretty much getting a particular subject all figured out, kind of have the corner on the market, you know, as far as that is concerned. And I like to remind myself, Dwayne, just remember, you're either green and growing or you're ripe and rotten. And <laughs> thankful for us, Lewis and Clark and the core discovery, they were still green and they were certainly still growing. Uh, they would learn from every one of these events. And on that entire expedition, two years, four months, and eight days, out of those 103 contacts that they would have the with the grizzly bear, uh, not once would any of them be severely hurt or killed, which is just absolutely amazing. You know, So that was on the, the 11th of May. Fast forward just a few more days to the 15th of May. They have another incident. Six men are sent out to go, uh, go hunting. They come across one of these bears. So they've kind of changed their tactics and how they're going to approach and fire on these bears. They, they reserve some fire because they're seeing, hey, this is a worthy foe here. But anyway, on that day, they were able to sneak into within about 40 yards of the bear before four of them shoot at once. They broke the bear's shoulder with uh, one of those balls. And then the other three balls hit it as well. It turned on them, and it came after them. Uh, two more stood up, and both fired into the animal, charging toward them, and the bear took a beeline for them. They ran for the river's edge. Uh, it was about a 20-foot drop to get down to the river. They dropped their guns and everything and jumped as far as they could out into the river. Uh, meanwhile, the others had hidden in the willows and were able to get one more shot off, uh, between them before the bear, so angry with them, jumped off of the precipice into the river with them. But that shoulder was broke. It did land down below them, and it was unable to fight that current to get up to them. And another man from the uh, river's edge was able to shoot him in the head and finally dispatch him. That bear that day, Joe Whitehouse, who didn't make a lot of uh, entries in his journal, uh, besides just, you know, a routine, almost a repetition. But he recorded the day that, uh, that the, the bear's paw would be 9 inches wide and 13 inches long. And his talon would be 7 inches long. So this print, this Plaster Paris uh, grizzly bear print that we have here, it is 8 and a quarter inches wide, and it is 13 inches long. So it would have been very much the size of this track right here, a little bit wider, and then this talon right here, this is just a replica, but this one's only six and uh, a quarter inch long, so another three quarters inch on the talon. I mean, just huge animals, absolutely huge animals. You know, it would be after uh, these initial incidents that uh, Captain Lewis, he's like, okay, some things are going to change. Nobody's going to go out alone anymore. We're just not going to allow that. We can't do that. Uh, these are worthy of our respect. For sure. And it, at night, when it came time to uh, bed down for the night, yeah, you're going to have that rifle. It's going to be loaded, ready to go, and lying right there next to your bedroll. Now, does everybody know that Captain Lewis had a very favored friend on the expedition, a four-legged style? He had his favored friend. It was a Newfoundland, that big dog. His name was Seaman. Yeah, he, uh, he was along for uh, the expedition, and uh, they're a guard dog by nature, but he, he would refine those skills a little bit. And uh, Seaman's job, 
at night when the men needed to get some rest, well, he would stand as a sentry of sorts. And uh, should any bear activity be discovered, well, his job was to run around and rustle these guys up so they could stand fast and defend their camp and their very lives in some case. And his semen was kept busy. There was some sleepless nights, especially as they came through the area of the Great Falls. They would make comment about that later, about there just always seemed to be something about Great Falls and the ferocity of those bears in that particular area. In fact, even when they came back through on the return trip, on the 15th of July of uh, 1806, uh, Hugh McNeil, Private Hugh McNeil, he is uh, actually traveling downstream on the portage route that they had uh, made the year prior in the area near Willow Run, and he's riding on a horse. He's coming along, and for whatever the reason, the bear didn't hear him coming, didn't smell him coming, uh, Private McNeil didn't see him, and when he finally does discover the bear, there's only 10 feet that are separating the two of him. The horse, so surprised, pitches him off, literally pitches him almost at the feet of the bear. Uh, it, there's no time to try and fire. The only thing he's left to do as a defense is take his gun, and he cracks it over the nose of the bear. He actually he breaks off the buttstock and days the bear for momentarily to give him long enough to climb up a willow tree that was right, right next to him there. And that bear kept him up in that tree for about three hours before it finally let him go. And then he had, his horse had drifted off some two miles. He was finally able to get a hold of that horse. But I mean, it just, I, I think this place probably haunted them with all of the uh, different bear experiences, the grizzly bear experiences that they had coming through here. But, uh, you know, as uh, Lewis and Clark would discover back then, there's just, uh, there's some things about being around bears that are just still in good practice today. I mean, you ought not go out on your own. Yeah, if you're going to be in bear country, you probably ought to take a friend with you. Uh, you know, these guys are hunting and butchering meat all the time, and, you know, lots of carnage around their camp as they're uh, butchering and consuming all this, you know, hmm. Bears have tremendous, tremendous smell. In fact, they say that uh, a grizzly bear has about 220 million olfactory sensors. Uh, the human, about 5 million. I, y you know, it's, there's an old uh, Indian saying that says, when a needle drops in the woods, the eagle sees it, the deer hears it, and the bear smells it. <laughs> tremendous, tremendous sense of smell. So, I mean... These guys' camps, you know, I just, every, you just, you can't help but go and sit down at the table. There's food to be had, so, I mean, that's another attractant to their camp. So, yeah, it's, it's a good idea to keep a clean camp. We have another thing today that they didn't have back then. We have, uh, I've got a canister here. They, they've got this bear spray now, you know, and uh, the, the stuff really has proven time and time again to be a, a fairly decent defense with a grizzly bear. You know, I, I sometimes will run into people that are out on a trail, and uh, I won't see any bear spray on their person. I'll ask them, like, hey, do you, are you carrying any bear spray? Oh, yeah, it's in my pack. <laughs> yeah. That's good that you've got some bear spray, but you know what? You probably better get it out of your pack, because I don't think you're going to have the time that you think that you need, or that you think that you're going to have when you actually need this. And, uh, you know, and there's been a couple of uh, circumstances where they'll get it out of their pack, you know, wanting to show me, yeah, I, I'm, I'm paying attention, and it'll still be in the blister package. <laughs> uh, and and I'll, I'll be like, so I would definitely take it out of there, too. What, you know, I mean, have you ever tried to get anything out of a blister pack? I'm always fighting with those things to get those open. And they're like, well, you know, what we were thinking is if we don't use it, then we can take it back. 
Well, <laughs> I have two problems with that. There's no store anywhere that will take these back and give you a refund. They'll take them back. They're not going to give you a refund. But you, you, you are doomed, absolutely doomed, if it's still in the blister pack and you need it in a hurry. It's not going to come out of there. So, yeah, just uh, with starting with Lewis and Clark, there are definitely some things that uh, we could all learn to uh, pay attention to uh, when we're in grizzly country so we don't end up, you know, in, in bad situations. But uh, anyway, <laughs> folks, that is my presentation on uh, Lewis and Clark versus Ursus Horribilis.